the other thing that I love to do in my own life and what I teach um, the clients that I work with as well to really start to retrain the brain is to look for evidence of the opposite. So this is so powerful because so many times we have this belief and because of what I was just talking about, brain priming, confirmation bias, we look for evidence of the same and then it confirms the belief and it actually really, really, really ingrains that neural pathway in the brain, making that pathway a lot more likely to be activated the next time you're in a similar situation. And then the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. But as humans, we have this beautiful, amazing gift of consciousness, even though it's 10%, (laughs) it's still enough. It's still a gift because what we can do is we can choose, we can become aware that we're getting back into our old patterns and habits and we can choose to think differently, do something differently, question something, look for evidence in the opposite way and that will start to change our brains. So can I share an example with you? Yes, please. Okay. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? If you feel like that's what you want to do. Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. It's always wonderful to be with you again. Look who I've got on the show today, the beautiful Dr. Naza Nalani. Welcome to the show, Naza. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy to be here and I just can't wait to have a chat with you. You and I met not that long ago, but I feel like we've known each other for a really long time. So we have this amazing connection and I'm just so excited to be here with you. I know we met through the Higher Self Expo that Zane Daniel put on, what, a month or two ago, two months ago, I can't remember, Uh, but not, but recently, which you can check out. There's like 18 hours of people speaking all free online on on the Higher Self Expo. And uh, you were co-hosting with uh, Zane and I actually got up early because uh, I was talking in the morning, but I heard your talk and I was like, wow, you're amazing. I want to get this woman on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. So if anyone's interested, the Higher Self Expo has a YouTube channel. You can just search Higher Self Expo and Karen's talk is on there. My talk is on there as well as like you said, 18 hours of amazing speakers talking about everything in terms of 5D consciousness. Absolutely. Living into a 5D experience, you know, what that's all about. It was a great, um, it was a great subject to discuss. And uh, anyway, if, you, if you're liking the shows, people listening, please remember to subscribe and press that bell button on, uh, on uh, YouTube and leave your comments. I love hearing your comments and share the shows with your friends and all that good stuff. Let me tell you a little bit about, about Naza, who lives in Canada. So it's Canada over there. We, we met... Today in Sydney, it's 11.11 and we came online right at 11 a.m. Sydney time and then we, I pressed the recording at 11.11 on the 11.11. So we're all 11s today. <laughs> I love that so much. Let me, let me tell you a bit about Dr. Naza. Nalani truly believes we are only limited by how big we are willing to dream. 
A cognitive neuroscientist by training and a student of the brain and its functions for at least the last 10 years, the more Nasa learned about the brain, the more she realised how very little we actually understand how the brain thing, how this, you say, how this darn thing works. <laughs> how this darn thing works. Nasa became interested in manifestation after reading the 100-year-old book, The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Wattles, which incidentally was the same book Rhonda Byrne was given when she was going through her dark night of the show, uh, the soul, and she created The Secret, The Secret Book and DVD. That uh, book was given to her by her daughter after her father died and she got divorced and I don't know, there was like all this crap going on and she was really down and her daughter gave her that book and she read that information and changed the world because of it. And like her, you're doing the same. This book sent you on an extraordinary explore, uh, exploration of the limitless potential of our mind, hearts and soul. Since then, Nasa has devoured scientific literature on goal achievement, along with everything and anything she could find out about the law of attraction. She truly believes we have the power within us to achieve every single goal we set for ourselves and can design a life full of love, joy, abundance, purpose, freedom, and adventure. Nasa is on a mission to help loving souls all over the world tap into their unlimited power and manifest lives full of love and freedom. She is the founder of Vibrant Minds and the creator of the International Dreamers Program. She has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, a master's in behavioral neuroscience, and is passionate about combining modern insights about the brain with ancient wisdom from the law of attraction. Did I get that right? Yeah. Dr. Nasa lives in Vancouver, Canada, is a Pisces, a collector of crystals and plants, and an Enneagram type two. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know what an Enneagram type two is. I did the Enneagram probably 20 years ago, but I've forgotten. Uh, you can find out more on vibrantminds.ca. You know, uh, uh, that um, what I loved about what you shared uh, in the High Self Expo was your experience when you were a young student and you had your first autopsy. I was absolutely riveted to that story. So we'll go into that in a minute, but let's just talk about how you uh, started. Well, who gave you the book? Like, how did you discover Wallace Wattles? Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for that beautiful intro. That was so <laughs> lovely. And I had no idea that the author of The Secret was inspired to go on her own journey by that same book. That's amazing. There's just so many interesting things in terms of the alignment that I'm finding in the experiences I've had. And that book specifically by Wallace D. Waddles, it just, it, I, I don't even know how it popped up, but I have Audible. And on my Audible, you know, there's a recommended within the app mm -hmm. and it just popped up and it said, Audible thinks you would enjoy this book. And I thought, oh, okay. So I clicked it. And when I saw that it was over a hundred years old, I was so fascinated. So I downloaded it. I listened to it. It's actually a really short book. So if anyone wants a quick read or a quick listen, give it a shot. And I was just mesmerized and blown away by how simple the ideas were that he shared, but how profound and powerful they were. And not to give the whole book away, but the quick summary is that 
what your what you focus on expands and your thoughts create your reality and if you can align your thoughts in a way that matches what you want to attract into your life all of a sudden things will start unfolding in a really 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 synchronistic way and it's it's really magical and i've seen it happen in my own life and so many of the lives of the members of my intentional dreamers program and just all over the world, everyone I talk to who's ever used these kinds of mindset and manifesting techniques. Have you ever been uh, interested in manifestation and things like that? Well, actually, it's what I teach. Yeah. <laughs> That's the main crux of what I teach. But uh, what was I going to say? Um, it's amazing to see that 100 years ago, this was available in book form. And, you know, like 2000 years ago, Jesus was talking about it. 3000 years ago, Buddha was talking about it. 5000 years ago, uh, you know, other spiritual teachers were talking about it. And probably 10 to 12,000 years ago, people understood it a lot more than they do now. Uh, maybe they called it something, they called it magic, or they called it the gods, who, who knows, but and, and then maybe hundreds of 1000s of years ago, there were societies on earth that actually completely lived it. But it's, it's amazing to see people like Wallace D. Waddles. And there's another woman who I just love who was teaching this in the 20s called Florence Scovell Shin. Have you heard of her, The Game of Life and How to Play It? And so the information's always been there. Uh, it's always been there. And if we could find it. So you just found it on Audible and just started reading it. It just came to you, basically. Yeah, it just, it's one of those things that, you know, it just when a bookshelf falls off the shelf and yeah. you know you're supposed to read it it was kind of the digital version of that <laughs> I but, actually think that you're somebody that lived in that time that was teaching it I was thinking about that this morning I have to tune in and, and um yeah I think you've come back to teach it in a very modern way I think you've taught it before but um but your journey through neuroscience and science and and mainstream science you know had to happen in order to uh, get a get a grip on the collective thinking of the day you know of this time so um, yeah I think you've taught it many times before wow so that's fascinating to hear <laughs> I'd be so interested to hear more about that later but I, yeah I think the for me personally when it when I first started studying the brain it was out of my own necessity and I've I've read a lot about your biography too and you came from a similar place where you know, you and I were both in this place in our 20s where we were just lost and didn't know what to do and, you know, what's next, what I'm being told I'm supposed to be doing is not making sense to me, what society is telling me, what, you know, the people around me. So we went on this journey to figure it out and look at it from a different perspective. And I went down the traditional school path, you know, mm -hmm. doing a bachelor's and a master's and the PhD, just yearning for knowledge I wanted to understand <laughs> how the brain works I wanted to understand why we are the way we are as humans and the more I learned the more I realized like you said in my intro we just we don't know we know a lot but we don't know everything there's so much that's still untapped I know crazy right when I was studying which was over 30 years ago uh physiology and and, and anatomy and, and um all that sort of stuff there were just lots of well, we don't know exactly how that works. And then there's this, this is, but we don't exactly know what that does. And then there's this, this, but we don't exactly know. And there's just so many holes. I think that you said that, you know, my discussion with Tom um, Barnett, he, you know, the, the same thing. We were studying stuff, but there were so many holes. But there was only holes because science doesn't include consciousness yet. It's starting to. 
you know, yet. And what's another crazy thing is that Max Planck and all the quantum physicists were talking about this stuff 100 years ago as well. Yes, Albert Einstein too. I quote him all the time because he was so aware of these concepts of the quantum realm and expanded consciousness and the different dimensions and all of these things. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Well, we never know if the quotes are right, but I think he was quoted to say that, you know, uh, intellect will take you so far, imagination will take you everywhere, you know, so he was a real proponent of creative thinking, imaginative thinking, uh, rather than, you know, leaving it up to what's supposedly true or not true logical thinking. So tell us about, tell us that story uh, about, um, for people that didn't watch the hype, the, when you first, your first autopsy, that, that was riveting. I was riveted to that story. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. So on my very first day of graduate school, I was just so excited. And I was telling the story at the expo where I remember waking up and it was bright and early, a crisp fall morning. And I put on this nice crisp white dress shirt and my slacks. And I went into my first neuroanatomy class and it was time to actually look at a real brain, hold it, study it, and learn about uh, about the brain, the real thing. And I remember I walked into the room and it was this very sterile white room. And there was a whole bunch of tables with a shape underneath and sheets. And the professor walked in and he uncovered one of the sheets and it was it was a body of someone who had passed away and who has so kindly and graciously donated their body to science so students like myself could learn. And I was just so scared because I had never seen a dead body at that point in my life. I was very lucky that I had never encountered that. And I remember my professor said, please take such care and respect and learn as much as you can. So this person's gift to you is doesn't go to waste because this is such a powerful, beautiful thing that they've given you the chance to actually learn from a real human brain. And so I remember just looking around and I could just smell the smell of the embalming fluid. I don't know if you've ever smelled that, but it smells like 300 pickle jars are all opened at once and all the windows and doors are closed and you're just trapped in there. Oh, Karen, it was so, oh, it's just so overwhelming. It just hits you. But after a few minutes, you get used to it. And I remember I was too scared to actually do the cutting. So my lab partner, thank goodness, did that. But together we slowly move, removed the brain and I got to hold it in my hands. And it was so soft. For some reason, I imagined the brain might feel like an arm or something, you know, but it wasn't. It was it was this jelly and it was soft and it felt like it was going to just disintegrate in my hand. So I was so careful with it. And it made me realize how precious the brain is and how fragile it is and how much it takes and how much it protects us and it heals itself. And it's just this very, very, very uniquely powerful thing because our brain is the bridge between our divinity and our humanity. It's where that comes together and where we understand everything. Well, we, we do our best to understand everything with the capacity that we have. But what's so fascinating about the brain too is that there's so much untapped capacity. Our brain actually is partly conscious 
but mostly unconscious. Have you ever heard about the, it's a common myth that we only use a certain percentage of our brain. Have you ever heard the, um, yeah, I remember when you were speaking, you said, you know, people say that we only use 10% of our brain. What do you think? And I was listening to you. I was in bed because I think it was five o'clock in the morning. I said, no, we use 100% of the brain. But anyway, you go on. You, you tell us the rest. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So many movies, you know, TV shows, books, even literature out there has this very, very, very incorrect concept about the brain that we only use 10% of it. Now it's true that we use 10% of it consciously, but we use 100% of it all of the time. 90 to up to 98% of the brain is functioning unconsciously though. And all that means is that we don't know what's happening. <laughs> we don't know what's aware of it. And that's why certain psychologists like Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud were historically kind of shunned from the scientific psychological community because they were obsessed with studying the unconscious mind because I agree with them what they believed was that's where most of the thoughts are happening and we don't know what's happening in there so they did their very best to try and uncover it using scientific methods but how do you prove something that you can't necessarily test empirically because the unconscious mind is what we don't know that we don't know <laughs> So how do you test that? It's really difficult. But they had Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, so many other famous psychologists, especially from about 40, 50 years ago, had so many interesting, fascinating concepts about how the mind works, especially that unconscious part. And today, with modern technology, with these neuroimaging equipment that we have and so many more advancements, we're finally starting to realize so much of what we, they were saying is actually very true. Some of it is false, some of it they were a little bit off with, but a lot of it is actually very accurate. And it's really fascinating to see what we're learning about how the mind works on unconscious, but also unconscious level. Oh, absolutely, Naza, absolutely. I think we're just, just starting to understand as much as science knows today, I think we're just starting to understand, you know, you've, you've watched quite a few of my shows. I'm totally into the whole ET thing because these races are living a higher consciousness in a physical form. Um, I remember when I was first, uh, you know, thinking about people talking to ETs and I was chatting to what I call my mob, who are people like, I don't know, Jesus and Mother Mary and Buddha and all that, that mob. Anyway, and I'm thinking, why would you talk to an ET when you can kind of go straight to, you know, ascended masters or straight to source? And then they explained to me, because they are beings living in a higher experience, in a more expanded experience, and they've got so much to teach humans about moving to that le next level because they're living it they're experiencing it and um, you know it's great to talk to spirit but then it's great to speak to people that are actually living with these unbelievable abilities inside a physical form and what they've got to teach us and the way that they utilize the brain is amazing I was listening to someone uh, talking about having their first telepathic communication or a gray was showing them how they communicate and he sent this download and he said it was like layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of different streams of conversations all happening at once like watching like watching a television that's got all different television streams or different televisions simultaneously 
do you know what I mean? And then like, like how do you tune it? Like, what do you focus on? I think humans just don't know how to focus multi-dimensionally. We're just starting to learn that, you know. What do they say? Men can't multitask. They can't talk and wash the dishes at the same time. Women, yeah. women are better at multitasking. I think we all have to get better at multi-thinking, multitasking and multi-thinking. Exactly. And along those same lines, if you think about how the human brain works, we, so we have that conscious and that unconscious part. And there are actually even, so you're talking about other beings with expanded consciousness, but even among humans, there are different people with different abilities to use their minds in an expanded way. Absolutely. And it's something that we can, so this is controversial, but it's something that I personally believe we can train ourselves to do. We can train to oh, yeah. use our brain more of it, larger than just 10% of it in a conscious capacity. I think we so, have to. I think as a human yes. society, we have to. We, ha we have to. And, and, you know, I don't know if you've seen First Contact by Daryl Anker. It's about his channeling Bashar. Do you know Bashar? Yes. Uh, yeah. I haven't seen that, but I do know Bashar. So in the, in the movie, he, he gets hooked up to an ECG machine and then they ask him to channel. And what they notice is the different parts of the brain that's lighting up when he channels as opposed to conscious thought or even meditative thought, or um, or even sleep thought. I mean, it's just amazing. And when you're channeling how much the brain is firing, uh, you know, how many, you know, how it lights up under an EEC, what do you call those machines? You're better at this stuff than me. But um, yeah. <laughs> so what have you, so how do we tune more into um, being aware of our subconscious thoughts? So that's a great question. At any point in time, we are actually taking in so much information. So right now, I don't know if you're sitting by a window, I'm sitting by a window, there's cars passing by. I wasn't aware of them, but that sound, those sound waves are coming into my ear, going into my brain. There's smells around my room, the smell of my lavender essential oil. It's going into my nose and into my brain, but I'm not aware of it, I'm not thinking about it, unless I direct my focus, direct my consciousness. So how I like to think about consciousness and unconsciousness is our subconscious mind, you can think of it as this big black space, and it's filled with stuff. And our consciousness is this beam from a flashlight. And where we decide to shine that beam is what is illuminated in that space at that particular moment. And we can, by training our brain, make the beam brighter so we can see more of it at any one time. Exactly, yeah. And eventually, one day, maybe we'll just be able to have the whole room illuminated at once, which would be fascinating. But in terms of how the brain works for most of us, so like I was saying, there's always tons of information coming in. Do you have a guess? It's in the billions for the number of pieces of information that come into our brain at any one moment. Oh God, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine, but it would be a huge number. Yeah. 11 billion, That's 11 crazy. billion pieces of individual information coming in from all around us. But how many pieces are we aware of at any time? It's under a hundred. Absolutely. Roughly 40. Yeah. 40 out of 11 billion pieces of information are we aware of at any moment? And, and, and some people that, a lot less. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Some people a lot less. Food, food, where's food, where's food? Like so much could be going around, but you're focused on, you know, like just this one thing. Yeah, and actually that's such a good point because especially with the daily grind of life, the daily stresses we're in, we can get so focused on just one thing. You know, we have these blinders on, we're just going down this one path. And what you think about, what you focus on, is what your brain will think more about and what you will focus even more on. So that beam, that flashlight, where you continuously point it in that dark room is where it will naturally go back to every time. Our yeah. brain likes habit. Our brain Habits. likes repetition. So, so what we can do is we can use that small percentage, that 10% of consciousness to retrain our brain. So we're using it in a more expanded way. And I'm excited to share some of those strategies with you if you're interested. I would love to. I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about shows like, you know, there's that show called The Mentalist. It's actually an Australian actor who plays, I can't remember his name, but The Mentalist. And people say, are you psychic? And he says, no, I'm not psychic. But he's actually someone that's doing what you're talking. He's actually just, that spotlight is just more aware of these little things. You know, all those shows on television where, uh, detectives, you know, they see things that most people don't think. They just have that broader awareness of what's around them. But then psychics have the same thing. They have a, a broader an awareness of what's around them, but then they're tapped into another awareness as well. So they're multitasking, which is which is what I'm doing all the time. I'm chatting to the mob and I'm chatting to you and I'm, you know, aware of what. So there is that multi-layering. And then there are people that have died that have said the same thing. You know, when you're in your body, you've got this focus. And then when they're out of their body, they said they can see 360 all at once. And they're aware of everything in the room, but they're also aware of everything in the building. But they're also aware of everything. And like there is this expanded awareness, like, yeah. But anyway, yeah, share some of the things that we can, how we can expand, uh, use our focus to expand our awareness. Sure, sure. But just to touch on what you just said quickly, one of my mentors, and I know you've said this too, I've seen you say this in many of your interviews, is that when we actually uh, choose, we choose to open our minds, it's an intention we have to set. And as soon as we do that, that's when things start to change radically. And that's when that beam of light will start to change and start to shift, but it's a choice you have to make first. So I love that you always talk about that because I think that's so important. And that's always the step one when it comes to anything, especially when it comes to expanding your consciousness or manifesting or using the law of attraction or training your brain or anything like that. Yeah, um, choice. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, the, the choice, choice decision. The, the, the decision and the intention. That's why I actually named my program Intentional Dreamers because the idea is that when you do something with pure intention, it's just really magical what you can accomplish. Absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite ways to work on expanding consciousness and retraining your brain is by using scripting. And scripting, have you ever tried scripting before? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But anyway, so, it's kind of just sort of like writing the play, like writing it out in your imagination or writing it down, like exactly. you're writing a play. Mm. Exactly. I love that description. I've never used that before. I'm going to borrow <laughs> that. Thank you. Yeah, it's like writing a play. So basically what you do is you put yourself in the moment that you want to have already happened, but it's in the future, 
but you write or you visualize it as if it's already here, as if it's right now. And you get as descriptive as possible, just like you would if you were writing a play. Mm -hmm. So for example, right now I am manifesting my dream home. I really, really would love this beautiful home with lots of white everywhere and wicker and wood and plants and crystals and a very kind of uh, Byron Bay feel. I've seen some videos of beach houses in Byron Bay in Australia. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want in Canada. Let me find that here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what you do is you basically visualize it or you write it down. Writing is very powerful because there's actually a different region of the brain that's responsible for writing. So if you can connect more, as many regions as possible at once, it's even more powerful. So you put yourself in the moment. So what I would do when I'm writing out my script is I would say, today we get the keys to our brand new house. I step in and the room smells like fresh paint. The walls are a bright white color and there's lots of natural lighting in. I smell the smell of lavender essential oil from the diffuser that I just plugged in and it makes the whole house smell like home. Um, the colors of the new furniture we got are warm and inviting and earth tones. And I love the, the new, I don't know, uh, plant that I put in the corner of the room, you know, as descriptive as possible. And you include as many things you see, smell, touch, taste, feel. Those are really important because the five senses all have their own individual regions in the brain. And so again, if we can activate as much of the brain as possible, the more realistic it becomes. And at the same time, if we can include emotion, that's when it's really powerful too, because as you know, our emotion is what connects us to the spiritual realm, because it's that intuition, it's that sense of knowing, it's that feeling, and it's that thing that we can't always describe perfectly. So that's okay. Just do your best and include as many emotions as you can. If you're stuck with the emotions, start with gratitude. You're grateful for whatever it is that you're, is happening in that moment that you're scripting. Mm -hmm. And what this does is something so fascinating in the brain. It does something called priming. So priming is basically when you've set your brain to then be aware and scan the environment for things that align with what you were already thinking about. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's able to attract it into your life so much easier. So let's say I'm driving down the street and there is some sort of billboard advertisement for homes for sale. Most days I drive by, my unconscious brain sees it. My eyes see it because I'm driving, I'm looking, but my conscious brain doesn't interpret it. It doesn't perceive it. And so I forget it. But because I've just done this scripting exercise, my brain is now primed. It's ready and it's going to pick up that information and it's going to allow me to then follow up. And maybe that's my dream home. And I saw it and I found it because my brain was already in the state where it's looking for what it is that I want to bring into my life. Yeah. There's a name for that. What's it called? Uh when you want to buy a car and you want to buy a red car and it's a specific type and then you go out on the road and you've never seen that car on the road before and now you see them everywhere. What's that called? There's a name for that. Yes. Yeah. I, anyway. I, I in the brain remember. that's called, yeah, in the brain that's called priming. priming. Uh, it's sometimes it's also called confirmation bias because it's the idea that when 
you have a thought, you look for more evidence to support that thought. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's sometimes called too. But that's exactly right. I'm sure so many people watching today have had that experience where you think of something and then all of a sudden you just can't see anything else but that everywhere you go, right? Yeah. Yeah. Confirmation bias. I'm just thinking of the American elections when you say that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's something totally different. We're talking about confirmation bias in the brain. <laughs> but, you know, what you believe, you'll find evidence of it. You'll find, Even yeah. a scientist, I mean, Esther Hicks says that about scientists, that they will uh, find what they want to find because we get to create our reality. So is there pure science or is there pure creation? That's a huge question within science itself, actually. Right. That's such a good point that confirmation bias is something that scientists have to be very careful of especially when there's money behind it because you know if there's money involved with these big pharmaceutical companies and things like that the there's more motivation to have a certain outcome and if you have a very 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 strict specific belief of how something should be then that's the evidence that you're going to end up finding. And there's so many unconscious ways that this could happen. So when I was a student in uh, studying uh, my PhD, in my cognitive neuroscience program, we were learning about how to properly conduct psychology experiments. And one of the things we learned is how even simply the process of interviewing somebody, asking them questions within an experiment, for example, can lead to different results and different outcomes. So you have to be so, so, so aware of all of this all the time. And I mean, I have a lot of respect for science, especially neuroscience, because they're using tools now like um, fMRI machines and different brain scanning techniques that it's taking away a lot of that bias. But that's the cool thing is now that we're slowly taking away a lot of that bias, a lot of these old findings are suddenly being rewritten. We're realizing a lot of it is not actually accurate. A lot of it was human bias, human error, human confirmation of their own beliefs at the time. And now we're having a very different perspective of what it means to think and to have cognition and to use your conscious mind versus your unconscious mind. Well, it's interesting. I don't think you can take away that bias. You know, I read in the Seth books many years ago, they said there are only two rules to life, only two. One, you create your reality, and two, there are no limits. And if that's it, if that's it, then anything's possible, like anything's possible. So confirmation, but, you know, like we get to experience what we believe, whether we're a scientist or not. Uh, A science looks out into the world and says, I want to discover the world, but what's actually happening is I'm creating the world. Like, are we discovering it or creating it? What do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. I think it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the easy answer too. (laughs) Actually, when I was a psychology professor for many years, my students always laughed at me because anytime I asked them a question, is it this or is it this? And they would give me an answer. I would always say, nope, it's both. Yeah. It's both. All, everything is always possible. Yeah. In any, in any field. And so in terms of what we're talking about right now, I think it's definitely both because 
it, I think one feeds into the other. Yeah. Right? Have one without the other. And it's almost like that chicken and egg question. Absolutely. First. <laughs> I think, you know, what just dropped in when I asked that question is, you know, we're discovering somebody else's creation. So we're exploring and discovering, and then you can go beyond that, like beyond that. So like science is, science is thinking that it's discovering what is, but in fact, if you create your own reality and there are no limits, like what is, is infinite, is unlimited. Uh, I remember Esther Hicks talking about, uh, you know, some where they were discussing this. If that was true and you cut off someone's arm, then if you believed it, you could grow back the arm. And she goes, oh, Esther or Abraham says, well, absolutely. I mean, there is nothing to say that that couldn't happen. But science says, well, that can't happen because it doesn't happen. Uh, and I think that where we get stuck in our habitual thinking is that we look at what's been and we say, well, it can't be anything else because it hasn't happened before. But everyone that's ever created anything has pushed the boundaries, has always said, I'll show them it's possible, you know, to break the minute mile, the runner that broke. And once one person says this is possible, then it unfolds or expands or explodes in the mind of the collective that this becomes a new reality, a new truth. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think that exactly. And I have I have two really exciting things to tell you. Uh, one, exactly what you're saying in the in the field of quantum physics right now, they're finding and they can't figure it out. We're slowly getting there. That when we're looking at quantum particles, the process of looking at it changes it. Yeah. So one state, and then when we observe it, it goes into a different state. Mm. So just because we think we're measuring something, we're seeing something. It doesn't mean that's the full truth of it. It doesn't mean that's the full story of it. And we're starting to realize that from quantum physics research, but this, this concept, I think, like you're saying, can be expanded to, to everything where, you know, maybe yeah. it's health medicine, maybe it's cognitive neuroscience, maybe it's anything out there that we're trying to find the truth of. There never really is a truth. There's there never hallelujah <laughs> there really isn't a truth beyond what you can imagine yeah look yeah. I got I received this email this morning from someone who said you know I watched some shows yada yada and my wife's got cancer but she's been a nurse looking after cancer patients and now she's got cancer and I believe you can help her and I was thinking about this before we came on and the thing is that when you've been entrenched in a system that has a group of beliefs that you've agreed to now you've got to untangle yourself from that. Like inside the mainstream medical model, cancer is a thing that is hard to heal and many people die and most people die. You know, there's a whole belief structure around it. And especially if someone's been a nurse watching people die. And the truth is, of course, you can heal cancer like that if you want to, if you, you know, if you create that, you can create it, you can uncreate it, you can create anything. But most people... So how do we untangle ourselves from the beliefs or the subconscious beliefs that we believe is our reality to create new possibilities? Like that's what we're all up for, hopefully, the people watching the show <laughs> or yes, listening. Exactly. And uh, just to swing back and touch on that, the second thing I was really excited to share based on what we were talking about is who are the best manifestors out of all humans? It's children, right? Yeah. Kids, kids are amazing manifestors. They think something and poof, suddenly it's in their lives. 
And why is it so easy for them? Because they don't yet have all of these very ingrained beliefs. Exactly. And the brain actually changes with every single thought we have, every single word we say, every single action we take. Right now, you and I, our conversation right now, everyone's with, with us listening, all of our brains will be very different by the end of this, which is mind blowing. The structure, the connections within our brain are different. So to answer your question, what can we start doing to create that change within ourselves and start untangling those very, very uh, ingrained beliefs that we've had, especially as adults, right? Because it's been repeated so many times. One of the best things we can do is honestly just learn, learn as much as we can have look at as many different perspectives as possible, as many different points of view as possible and have an open mind when we go to it. Don't read something, listen to something, watch something already judging it, right? Have an open mind and just absorb it. And that's it. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to question it. Just listen and absorb and let your brain do with it what it will. And from there, that's going to start to create new neural pathways. And it's going to allow us to have a very expanded view when it comes to anything we experience next time. And it's a snowball effect. The more we do this, the more the easier it gets for our brain to do this. And all of a sudden, we have this ability to just look at things with bright new shiny eyes. Absolutely. I was saying to Naza before I turn on the recording, what I absolutely adore about her is her enthusiasm to to keep learning, to know more. And I said, you know, how old are you? I don't even know how old you are. But no matter how old you get to 60 or 100 or 160, never lose that enthusiasm to know more. Because I think that just what you're saying, that ability to want to know more and to allow yourself to be wrong with what you do know, like allow yourself, but it's like, no, that's not how it is. It's always been like that. Like that's what I was taught and that's what I've experienced. And, and that's how it is. And as we get older, we get locked into how life is and we start creating smaller and smaller and smaller cages or experiences. And, um, and kids, just like you say, are so open to learning and um, yeah, just staying open to learning. That is that is so and that's what I love about you it's just that you've got this such an open enthusiasm to want to know more and explore and yeah I just I love that about you never lose that for anyone never lose that and if you haven't got that get that (laughs) yeah that enthusiasm to know more and be and be willing to be wrong about what you know and that that it just expands your mind I think sometimes I think sometimes when you do have those aha moments, I've had them many times with people on the show, you can literally feel your mind or your brain changing. You know, it's like you have those sort of like like moments where you go, oh, I never thought about it like that before. And you get this like, aha. Have you had many of those lately? Oh, my goodness. So often when I'm watching your show, <laughs> I've had it many times for sure. You have amazing guests and even the videos you do when you know you're doing your reviews and things too the insights you have are always (laughs) (laughs) mind-blowing for sure and the other thing that I love to do in my own life and what I teach um, the clients that I work with as well to really start to retrain the brain is to look for evidence of the opposite 
So this is so powerful because so many times we have this belief and because of what I was just talking about, brain priming, confirmation bias, we look for evidence of the same and then it confirms the belief and it actually really, really, really ingrains that neural pathway in the brain, making that pathway a lot more likely to be activated the next time you're in a similar situation. And then the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. But as humans, we have this beautiful, amazing gift of consciousness, even though it's 10%, (laughs) it's still enough. It's still a gift because what we can do is we can choose, we can become aware that we're getting back into our old patterns and habits, and we can choose to think differently, do something differently, question something, look for evidence in the opposite way, and that will start to change our brains. So can I share an example with you? Yes, please. Okay, so one example that I I love to share um, with my clients is when we think we're having bad luck, so many times, actually, it's the best luck ever but we don't see it at the time. And hindsight is 2020. So in the moment, it's so hard to see. But if we take a moment and we look backwards at the things that have happened in our lives, there are so many instances, I'm sure for every single person watching, where what you've experienced that felt bad at the time was actually the best thing that's ever happened. And in my own life, this has happened. So when I graduated from my bachelor's degree, I was obsessed with moving to Vancouver, where I live now, but I'm actually from the other side of Canada, where there's a ton of snow and it's really cold. (laughs) Vancouver is a little bit more mild. So I had this dream of coming out west, the mountains and the ocean and all of this. And I really, 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 really wanted to get into the University of British Columbia. It was my dream. There was this cognitive neuroscience program with this very famous supervisor who I was obsessed working with to work with. And I applied and I got in and I even got flown out and I got interviewed and I passed the interview and I got accepted. But I had to do one last thing, which was to take the it's called the GRE and it's an entrance exam. And during that entrance exam, I had the worst panic attack of my life. It was so bad and I completely failed and I didn't get into the program and I cried and I was so upset and I was asking the universe, you know, why are you doing this to me? I was, I want to manifest this. I really, really want to go to this school and I want to work with the supervisor, but it didn't happen. And so I ended up getting into a different school, had a different supervisor who in the end, I actually loved, I loved my program. I loved my supervisor. I was able to just really explore my passion for learning more, like you said. And what's so fascinating is one year later, I was contacted by one of my friends who actually got into that exact program with that exact supervisor I was supposed to go to. And she said it was the worst experience of her life. The supervisor was the just a horrible person, was abusive to all of her students. And it was such an emotionally, psychologically damaging, traumatizing time in my friend's life. She dropped out of school. She had to drop out. That would have been me. And I was protected from that. And I was so convinced that this was the only path for me and I couldn't see anything else. But what I do now in the moment is I remind myself of experiences I've had like that. 
And so I always look for evidence that things are not necessarily how I see them. And that is allowing me as I move forward to have that open mind. So even when new things are happening that, you know, feel like, oh, I don't want this. I always bring myself back and look for evidence of the opposite. Have you ever had an experience like that, Karen? Oh my God, that's such amazing advice. That is just such amazing advice. I've had so many experiences like that. One that comes to mind this year, my daughter was bitten by a shark, which is just such an Australian thing to happen. Wow, is she okay? (laughs) She's fine now, but it was pretty traumatic. But it's so interesting how people react to me. They say, oh my God, you must have been so worried as her mother. And I'm like, no. Why weren't you worried? Because I realized that this was something her soul was choosing and that she would learn so much from this experience. Um, You know, what was beautiful was that she had a big gash and she's lost um, the major artery in her uh, leg that that goes down to her feet, but they've they've sewed her back together and she's walking again. She'll never be the same, but she's not lost a limb. But even if she had lost a limb, it would have been something that her soul has chosen for a reason. Like she was born five weeks preemie. It was all very traumatic. And again, you know, this is almost 30 years ago, but again, I was calm. I think I was under uh, like tutelage from my guides. I was completely calm, which the nurses thought was very detached. They saw me as someone very detached, but I knew that her soul was choosing to come in this way. Like there was something that was happening that I couldn't understand and it looked like trauma but it was it was servicing her in some way and the same with the shark bite and it was so funny I was thinking about this house that I live in I've got someone staying with me as I said to you before and she's been asking me questions how long have you been here blah 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 and I was talking about it and when I first moved in here I cried because I thought the place was so ugly and it wasn't where I wanted to live and when I look back I've been here for eight years never in my life have I lived anywhere for eight years because I've always lived in rented places that were sold and people moved their relatives in and, you know, they kicked me out of these places. Like three years was the longest I'd ever ever lived anywhere. And this place is a place that I've lived. I've made it my home. It's just, it's like, when I look back, it's absolutely perfect for my needs. And, but when I moved in, I thought it was the worst place. (laughs) So it's so funny how our perceptions just you know like give us experiences the emotional experiences that it could be the best thing that ever happened to you but can we look at it from a different mindset just like you're saying can we remind ourselves when things everything's going wrong that maybe everything's going right yeah yes exactly thank you for sharing that story that's very beautiful and I love that you were able to have this sense of calm because what that did, I'm sure, was it provided that calm energy to your daughter as well, which allowed her to heal in a way that wouldn't have been possible if there was all those stress hormones running through both of you. So that's very powerful. Well, it's interesting. She wasn't here. She was a long way away. She was up on the top of Australia. And I wasn't around her because her father flew up there and he kept saying, no, don't come up. We're going to fly her down to Sydney. And she's good. you know, I've got the surgeon you know, lined up in Sydney. It's all going to happen in Sydney. Anyway, it didn't all happen in Sydney. She stayed up there for like months, um, which was all perfect too. But I spoke to her every day, but maybe that calmness did help her. But she learned so much from that experience. One was using her mind to overcome pain. Like that was something that she didn't want to be on all the meds, 
and they were making her sick. So she was refusing the pain. And then she thought, well, if I'm not going to use the drugs to stop the pain, I have to use my mind to stop the pain. So using her breath, using her focus to focus away from the pain. And it was like this unbelievable cognitive training for her really in seeing how her mind creates her reality even her pain reality so everyone would think that if you've had an operation that you should be in pain right but then what if you're not like what if you can think in a way that doesn't include experiencing suffering so so many lessons were learned from that. And she will tell you too. I'll get her on the show one day. She said that she doesn't want to come on the show and talk about it. Uh, but so many lessons were, yeah. And, and we think about all the traumas that we've been through and how we've learned so much about who we are and what's possible through them. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. And even in terms of, you know, things that we're experiencing day to day or information we're finding. So the US election just happened, right? So that's something right. that's present on everybody's mind across the world. And for a long time, I hated Trump. Right. I had this deep hate for him because right. I thought he's a terrible person. He's causing a lot of people pain. Right. He, you know, he shouldn't be in power. All of these negative thoughts, and so as much as I can, I always, always, always try to lead with example. So I had just finished teaching this concept to the members of my program. And so the next day I had these thoughts because I was reading something about Trump and I thought, you know what, I'm going to apply this to my own life. So I started looking for evidence of the opposite. I started looking for evidence of why Trump is not a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is actually he's just a very damaged emo uh, and a person in a lot of emotional pain. He had so many experiences of trauma throughout his life that through all of that has led him to become who he is today. And having that empathy for him and seeing it from that different perspective just completely softened my heart and just helped me release that anger and that resentment that I was having. Mm. And it changed my brain. And so now every time I see him, instead of having that instinctive, you know, furious response I instead instead have compassion and it's making my life better and well absolutely energy is gonna you know help collectively as well if we can all shift in that way absolutely people don't you know I've had lots of emails um someone sent me an email saying you know that this person that you had on your show is a Trump supporter and I remember writing back to that person saying well he is the president of your country I would support him too because, you know, he is the president. Whether you love him or hate him, that is what is. So you can hate him, but that doesn't hurt him. That only hurts you. But if you support that there is some greater plan that has put him in office and then maybe you could open your mind a bit anyway. I never heard from that person again. But that's exactly right. Like, you know, there have been people in power here in Australia that I have not agreed with and thought they were ridiculous and thought, oh, my God, how are we so immature to elect somebody like that? And, and, and all those negative thoughts I have about them, I think that's not doing me any good. Like, it's just making me feel bad. And so it uh, doesn't matter if you disagree with someone, hating them doesn't feel good. Anyway, this is something that um, it was the same with Trump. I remember when he got in power. I was in Perth staying with my brother and my little nephew who said, oh, Trump got in. And I said, no, nah, that didn't happen, thinking that wasn't possible. <laughs> I know. Then, I, I, was in this, I was in the exact same boat as you. I know. I, was, I couldn't even believe it. But at the same time, 
It's important, like I said, to look for evidence of the opposite of what we believe. Look for evidence, yeah. And, and, and in that moment, I thought, okay, so he's the president of the United States of America. There must be something going on here that I don't understand. Like, and I just was willing to sit with that instead of thinking, how ridiculous, how ridiculous. And I have to say, as I've watched it, I'm understanding what that is more now. Like there is a plan in place that I don't understand, but I'm, I'm starting to see what exactly why that happened. And even what's happening right now, I was having a chat with my mob about it the, and, and they're explaining why what's happening is happening. Like all the craziness that's going on in your country and how it's such a global um, event, you know, like the whole world has been watching, not your country, well, the United States, but how the whole world has been watching the United States and what they've been going through. Yeah. But I wanted to talk. Um, I saw, I was watching your show this morning and you were saying that um, you loved hearing stories from Alan Watts and you said that his family released all his work for free after he died. I didn't know that about Alan Watts, uh, that his family, and I wondered, you know, because there's so many things around Alan Watts this, Alan Watts that, and that was beautiful. I learned that from you this morning. Oh, you, so nice. <laughs> you were also talking about that you uh, suffered with anxiety and you were talking about, I wanted to talk about this um, empathy and anxiety and sympathy versus empathy. Where will we go? Let's talk about, let's talk about anxiety. How do you describe anxiety? Hmm. Yes, anxiety has been a longtime friend of mine. I have had anxiety since I was about eight years old, very, very young. And in my early 20s, I started to have panic attacks. And I was at a point where I was having up to five panic attacks per day. Wow. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack before. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. So, so you know how draining they are. Yeah. And for me you know, having five per day, I, that's basically all I was doing. I, I couldn't get anything else done in the day. And I was just, you know, exhausted, tired. And that was part of the reason I was so passionate about learning about the brain. I wanted to learn how to heal my own brain. Right. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start my PhD program. I'm going to read all the textbooks, learn everything there is to know about the brain, heal my own brain, and then heal everybody else's brains too. <laughs> that was my dream <laughs> when I first started school. And of course, I quickly realized that psychology, you know, cognitive neuroscience, neuroscience, the, none of these fields really fully understand anxiety. Right. Basically, the concept of what happens with anxiety is that we have two systems in our body, a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is called the rest and digest system. It's when our body is in a state of calm and it's when our body, it takes time to heal, to digest our food, and it's in a relaxed state. The other system is called the sympathetic nervous system and it's called our fight, flight, or freeze response system. And this is a very, very powerful, important system for the evolution of humans, because we used to live out in the wild, in the jungle, when there was tigers chasing us. So we needed to have this instant trigger of a rush of energy and this buildup of these stress hormones and chemicals in our body, because what it did is it allowed us to 
become strong enough, become fast enough, become intellectually sharp enough to get away, survive. But then what's meant to happen is once we're safe away from the tiger or the danger or whatever it is, we're meant to calm down and go back into that parasympathetic state where our body has time to recover. But in today's world, because of the constant stress we're all in, we're all in this go, go, go life cycle, we don't have that opportunity to go back. And so we're constantly in this sympathetic, hypervigilant state. And that's why the threshold is very different now, where before it was a tiger attacking us that pushed us into this high anxiety state. And now it can be something very, very small. And sometimes we don't even know what the trigger is. It just suddenly comes over us. And that's what was happening to me as I was starting to have panic attacks just out of nowhere. I didn't even know why, what was happening. And learning about how the brain and body works in terms of these two systems did help but it didn't give me the full answer. It didn't really help me understand how to kind of bring my body back into that parasympathetic state naturally. I went to doctors, I went to psychologists. I'm a huge advocate for therapy. I think therapy is very powerful, especially somatic therapy specifically. It's a body-based therapy instead of a brain-based therapy, which you'd think as a brain specialist, I would be into the brain therapy, but actually, in my opinion, it doesn't work as well as the body-based therapies. But the solution here in North America, and you can tell me if it's the same in Australia, is medication. Someone has anxiety, someone has depression, here's some medication, this will help. And I went down that path, and I very quickly learned that what the medication does is if this is the spectrum of emotions, yes, it does blunt and cut down the negative emotions, but it does it to the positive emotions as well. And so now the range of emotions is here where it's naturally meant to be here. And so, okay, you never really feel too sad, too stressed, too anxious. We also never really feel happy, joyous, excited, passionate. You're just numb. And I so quickly realized that that's not what I want to feel. And there's actually a huge problem. There's an epidemic of people starting antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, and then committing suicide after they've started the medication meant to prevent it. Absolutely. And there's, yeah, and there's still so many theories about why this is happening. But from my own personal experience, I think it's because all of a sudden you just don't feel, you don't really yeah. feel what you want to feel anymore. So yeah. that was very, scary and have you ever been through something like that before oh dying look when I was watching your videos this morning there was an image of you when you were talking about your anxiety there was an image of you as a little girl at a party and you had your arms up in the air and you were jumping up and down and I'm like you don't look too anxious and that in that you were just like on fire you were so cute anyway and I thought about it and I thought actually you know a lot of anxious people are very expressive and talk a lot and that's their anxiety they become overtly um um you know over not introvert the opposite to an introvert 
an extrovert. They become extrovert, yeah. And and that's I I've got so many friends like that that talk 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 talk, or they have to be kind of on. And I remember having a conversation with a girlfriend of mine. Uh, she's not so well these days, but she was beautiful and hilarious, and she just stole wherever you were with with her. She was on stage the whole time. She was cracking jokes, and we had this really intimate conversation in the car one day, and she was just like, "I have to be." on the stage the whole time otherwise people aren't going to like me that's what they expect of me so she had some story in her head and I think a lot of anxiety for many people is wrapped up with I'm worried about what you think of me like that's that and which is probably why we get anxious you were talking about your first show you know and that was definitely my first show putting on you know going to camera what are people going to do? I look like an idiot. Am I going to sound like a, you know, like that anxiety that we all hang in, into just tuning into you. You were carrying a lot of collective ancestral thought form from your lineage, but your soul chose that in order to work with it in order to do what you do now. So um, as much as it was hard to deal with, you also chose it because you're an amazing teacher because of it. And, uh, you know, I think that you were looking for where it came from, came from your family lineage. Yeah. Thank you. And it's, it's so fascinating that you say that because that was actually one of the huge revelations I had um, with my anxiety. So the YouTube video you're talking about, what I share in that video is that the anxiety is actually a gift yeah. because what it means is that when you have anxiety, it means you you feel, you feel deeply. And that means you can feel the bad, but it also means you can feel the good. And often people who have a lot of anxiety are also empaths. They're very, Absolutely. very, very intertwined. And that's a beautiful gift to have. But in terms of healing the anxiety, what really helped me was learning that, first of all, my anxiety is not my enemy. So incorporating that part of me, learning to love that part of me. And the other, I mean, there was many things and I could talk about uh, the things I did to heal my anxiety naturally for hours. So I won't get too into it, but to touch on what you mentioned about my ancestral history is, yeah, I worked with an energy healer and she indicated that I had some, a lot of ancestral trauma. And when I looked into it, I come from Kurdistan. Kurdistan is a region that's North of Iraq. And in that region, wow. the Kurdish people don't have their own land. We are a, we're a group of people who have, have not had our own country for many, many generations. And we've been fighting for our freedom. And it's there's so much trauma in my lineage wow. and so much, you know, fear, uncertainty, worry. All there was even just Huge. one generation ago, my um my grandma and my father's family, they had to escape to the mountains and they were living in the mountains. And even my own story, I'm an Im immigrant in Canada. I was born in Kurdistan and I was only wow. three years old when my parents escaped on the back of a horse across the mountains and crossed the border of Iraq to Iran and lived in a refugee camp to wow. find safety and find a better life for myself and my younger brother. So there's all of this, you know, excess trauma. And then as an empath, I absorb it 
and then that creates anxiety as well. So a lot of the times when there's those panic attacks, you don't even know where they're coming from. That's what I was, um, was indicated to me. And that's yeah. amazing. You're, you're picking that up too. That's very magical. Oh, absolutely. It's so funny because I meant to ask you right at the beginning of this, where you were from, because Nalini, you, you know, your name, I thought it was like Indian descent, but what, where is it? Say it again, Kurdistan? Yeah, I'm from Kurdistan. Uh, it's, so right now there's the northern region of Iraq where the Kurdish people live, but there are a huge number of Kurdish people in Turkey, in Syria, and in Iran as well. Wow. Um, but there is no official Kurdistan country. Wow. Wow, you're a little angel that came into that to heal it for your whole lineage. Thank you. Thank you. Because, you know, because we're all connected, quantum science says this too, you know, quantum spirituality says we're all one. When you heal it on in you, you heal it for your whole lineage, your whole family line, both present, past and future. Yeah. So thank you for the work you're doing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for teaching us how to do that work because it's so important. And I think as much as we can, if we can just remember that, like you were saying, all, all aspects of our lives, all parts of us are here for us. And if we can ask ourselves, why is this happening for me instead of why is this happening to me? Just that small mindset shift oh, yeah. is very powerful. Absolutely. And you were talking about, I think a lot of the people who are anxious are empaths. Absolutely. You know, I have a best friend, her name's Karen. <laughs> we went to school together and she was a heroin addict for 35 years. And it was only because she was an empath, you know, and, and you know, everyone deals with their empathic abilities differently. We were not like, we're old. And so we were not taught about empathy back then. And so what she did to stop feeling was just take drugs. And a lot of people, you know, take drugs, either pharmaceutical drugs or illegal drugs or alcohol or marijuana, or they eat, you know, they try to stop their feeling. But uh, I think that, yeah, as empaths, we're picking up on how people feel we don't understand that we can shift that vibration by thinking differently. And most people in this world are not feeling so happy. <laughs> They're pitching and complaining and worrying. And so an empath feels all that. Um, let, you were talking about in that, in, in your show that, that I was watching this morning, sympathy versus empathy. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yes. I just posted a video on my YouTube channel called Empath Survival Guide. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> like you said, I think we need so much today because so many of us are, um, we're awakening to our empathic abilities, but yet there's so much of that stress, negative energy collectively that mm -hmm. the empaths are absorbing and it's making mm -hmm. it really hard to just get out of bed in the mornings, to be honest, for a lot of us. So mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to sympathy versus empathy, empathy is when you really feel what people are feeling. And sympathy is when you can understand from a conceptual cognitive level what someone is feeling. But that's the main difference between being an empath. When you're an empath, you actually feel it with them. So if someone is feeling sad, you feel sad with them. If someone, often it can happen with physical pain too. If someone has pain in their back, you might start having pain in your back too. So these are signs that you're a very powerful empath. But the great amazing news is, just like you said, Karen, is that when we have 
these empathic abilities, we're not only able to absorb what everyone else is feeling, which sometimes is not in our favor, we can also influence what other people are feeling. We can change the way they're feeling with our energy. And it's very magical and very powerful because what it does is it allows us to take control, back control over being an empath. And it's not this, you know, this curse. It's a blessing more than anything. It's your superpower. Empathy is your superpower. And I see it so much with the mm, 1221 here. I see it so much with the younger generation. They're so empathic. Uh, maybe, and they're talking about it. Maybe when I was young, we didn't understand what it was and we weren't talking about it. Um, but yeah, and, and when you go on Facebook, some of the empathic, you know, empathy groups, if I go in and check out what's happening, they're all complaining. Is everyone feeling bad? Is everyone feeling bad? I'm feeling so bad. I'm feeling so bad. They're all talking about empathy being their curse instead of their superpower. I love the way you broke down the word empathy. So M meaning in and pathy meaning feeling. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So what does simp mean? Simp feeling, simp. If you break down, I'm not sure. I'll have to look that one up. Okay, I, I have a feeling it might mean with, so you you can you can understand what someone else is Weird feeling. feeling. You. Oh, it, but I, it, so, so it looks like the synonym for symptom, like sympathy. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'll have to look yeah. that one up. I, I love I the way you break these things down and make it so we can understand these <laughs> these things. And um, you know, there's science behind the empathy. Do you want to talk about the science behind it? Oh, this is amazing. This is so fascinating. So when we look at the brain, what we can see is there's a region called the anterior cingulate cortex and sometimes called ACC for short. And this is where we see a lot of brain activation when we're scanning people in these different, you know, brain scanning uh, machineries. And it's so fascinating because when there's damage to that part of the brain, oftentimes we see people exhibit psychopathic behaviors, mm -hmm. which is completely opposite to empathic behaviors. Mm -hmm. So psychopathy is a disorder where people feel no empathy. They feel no connection to other people. If someone else is in pain, you feel nothing. You might have sympathy still, actually. You might understand that they're in pain, but because you don't feel it with them, it's meaningless, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, just something else, just something neutral you're just observing. Mm -hmm. and this is why a lot of times people with psychopathy end up doing really terrible, bad things to other people. Mm. Like, you know, the there's there was that movie on Netflix that was about, um, was it Ted Bundy? Mm, I don't even like to think about things like that. No, but yeah, you know, they kill them either. and chop them up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but it's so interesting when we look at these cases of people who are psychopaths or have psychopathy as a disorder, a lot of times they actually, after they've passed away, they'll do an autopsy and they'll find that there was a tumor in the brain where the empathy processing centers are meant to be. So their brain was damaged, which was not allowing them to feel empathy. Wow. And that's why, you know, they exhibited these tendencies. But also when you look at interviews with these types of people who have no empathy, what you hear them saying over and over again is I did these very extreme things, these extreme actions, hurting other people in these very extreme ways to feel something. I just mm. wanted to feel, mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't feel anything 
and I don't feel anything for others and I don't feel with people. So that, can you imagine how isolating that is? Mm. That, and that is the key symptom of, in my opinion, every single disorder out there is this feeling of isolation, loneliness. There, I mean, I'm just getting emotional thinking about it because it must just be such a hard way to live your life, to feel so alone. Disconnected. Mm. Disconnected. That's a perfect word. And that's the beauty of being an empath is, you know, you're never alone. Mm. You always have everyone around you. Even if we're far away digitally, I can feel your energy right now. And you can feel mine because you're also an empath Mm. and we have that connection. And that's a very beautiful thing. And even after we get off this call, I'm still going to be sending you love (laughs) and vibrations and all of that and and vice versa, I'm sure. So it's, it's a very, very. Oh, we've got a few glitches today. You've frozen. Anyway, we had a couple of, we had a few glitches today, but um, it froze and we've lost where we were. Um, Yeah. We were talking about empathy. Uh, So how, can people use their empathy that feeling of connection uh say they're walking they walk into a room and they feel the negative energy in the room how can they transform that through their empathy Mm, i love that so the first is to like we were talking about earlier is to just have the intention the intention that you will change the energy of the room with your energy because you are a powerful empath. And the second thing to do, I mean, there's many different techniques, but my favorite is a visualization technique. So we, you can have a lot of power within your heart chakra that you're able to actually send that loving energy to other people. And so what I like to do is I imagine this beam of light or a string that's connecting my heart to the heart of the other people in the room with me, especially the people who have that kind of, you know, dark cloud around them. And I imagine it's green because green is the color of the heart chakra. And this basically sends love energy to them. And it instantly changes the entire vibration of the room and you don't have to really do anything special just keep having the conversations like you are but in the background of your mind do this visualization and it's so magical how you see the demeanor of the person shift the way they're talking shift they're suddenly you know they're not so focused on the negative anymore and that's the beauty of being an empath is you can truly change the energy of the room as well as absorb it, but it's your choice. You get to choose how you want to interact with your empathic abilities. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that knowing that even though you're feeling a certain way, you can change that feeling. That's, I think that are all these, you know, maybe they're young, maybe they're old, I don't know, but uh, people complaining about being a victim to their empathy, you know, when they do feel the problems of the world or the pain of the world or the pain of their family or the pain of their friends, physically, even physically, as well as emotionally, that you can change that. And because that empathy is that symptom or um, awareness of the connection that you have with that person so if you are feeling their emotional pain or their physical pain it's actually just showing you you're connected so if you change they're going to follow right yeah it's because you're connected so it all has to do with mirror neurons do you want to talk about mirror neurons oh sure yes so mirror neurons are fascinating fascinating 
uh, aspect of the brain where basically when you're doing an action, you have neurons, you have brain cells that are activated. So right now my hand is waving. There's brain cells that are sending a message down my arm to my hand, telling my hands to make this motion and actually neurons um, or information, nerves taking a message back up to my brain, telling my brain, okay, your hand is doing what you want it to do. So there's this constant feedback loop. So mirror neurons are really cool because if I'm doing this, my brain is activated, but if I'm watching you do that action and I'm just sitting here and I'm not doing anything, but you're the one waving, my brain will activate. Yeah, so right now my brain is active as if it's me waving, but what is missing, so that feedback, right? So what's missing is the feedback from my hand telling my brain, okay, your hand is waving. That feedback is not present. So I know that it's not me. I know it's you, but what is, oh, this just blows my mind. It's so, so, so cool. When there's, there's this very famous neuroscientist called Ramachandran. And when he did a, uh, some research where he actually put uh, anesthesia in a person's arm and he did the same tasks over, he found that the person could not identify whether it was them or someone else who was doing the action you don't know if it's you or another person if that stimulation that sensation of the feedback is gone if that's gone all of a sudden this barrier of what is separating us which is basically the exterior of our bodies is gone and nothing else is left but the connectedness of our consciousness wow neuroscience is showing this isn't so amazing? Okay, okay. So when you're watching someone waving, if you don't have the feedback loop that says your hand is waving, you actually think that your hand is waving because you're watching it. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. So in that, in that, that was my example. In the actual study, what they did was it's with pain. So they would right. do a prick. So if you're pricked, I, can, I know I'm pricked because my brain is telling me. Yeah. If you're pricked and I'm doing nothing, I know it's not me because I know there's no sensation being told to mm -hmm. my brain. But if my hand has anesthesia and I can no longer feel my hand and I watch your hand get pricked, I feel pain. You know, there's the, what is that guy? Is it David Blaine? You know, the magician. He's, the magician. He, I he, loved does, he does that with people. He blindfolds people and then he touches the wife. And, um, and then he takes it and he says, where was I, where were you feeling it? And he said, oh, I was feeling, I was feeling you touch me here. And he goes, I wasn't touching you. I was touching your wife or your friend or your daughter, or, but it's someone that they're, they have a closeness and relationship. And he said, no, no, you were touching me. And he goes, I wasn't, I was touching them. So how is, how is he doing that? How, because I think that he's playing. It's not a trick. I don't think it's a trick. I think he's actually playing with these mirror neurons. I don't know how he's doing it, but I, don't, I love what that you, what do you I don't know. I actually don't know. I will, I will have to go do some research on David Blaine and that I magic. Think it was him. There's a few people that have done it. I think it's David Blaine. I have seen that trick before. Yeah. It's very fascinating. Yeah. I, I don't know how he does it. It could it could be with mirror neurons, probably not, because like I said, you need the anesthesia, you need to take away the sensation. So the person Well, well that's know. the thing. He's not using anesthesia, he's using no. consciousness. He's using consciousness. <laughs> so uh maybe it's his belief, his intention, his belief, his knowing, 
he's knowing <laughs> he's setting it up as something he knows that he can do so he's manifesting it right there is only two rules you create your own reality and there are no limits maybe that's just his rule i i i can do this with people and so that's that's his experience and theirs because his power of intention is just so huge i don't think it's a trick per se a lot of those uh, magicians that call themselves i don't know they're they're not sort of just card playing musicians they do these feats like he does those things where he starves himself and puts himself in these mm. precarious situations mind over matter type thing um, yeah yeah david Blaine, especially that's his brand is is this mind over matter magic which is very interesting but he's kind of demonstrating what you're talking about i, I think but, but without the anesthesia um yeah as i say i think we're just touching on what's possible it's just touching on what's possible i mean if we're moving into what do you think of telepathy if we're moving into a telepathic society where not only are we empathy empath empathetic empathic we're telepathic all these pathics um so we're reading we're we're reading each other's minds uh, I, I mean i know that some of the ets some of the people i've had on the show i've talked about if you're if you're connected if you and i are connected completely and i can read your mind how can you have privacy but you can mm -hmm. actually cut off a section of something that you think while you're still beaming something else that you think so that only i'm receiving a stream of consciousness but not all of it so there is this i don't know agility in focus in thinking oh my god it blows your mind doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. And in terms of telepathy, I, I suppose that would be true because it's the same as speaking. So we have so many thoughts, but we choose what we say. Right. So I suppose telepathic communication would be the same. Exactly. We have all of these thoughts, but we choose what to send to each other. So you would still have that ability to keep your own private thoughts uh, in terms of actually telepathically communicating, I think globally, we're a lot closer than we might think. And this right. is what I talked about at the Oh, drat. Oh. <laughs> this is what you talked okay, about I, at I the high, at, we froze again. This is what you talked about <laughs> at the higher self expo. What did, what, say that again? Yeah. What did you talk yes, I was saying this is what I just spoke about at the Higher Self Expo, where Elon Musk's company called Neuralink is creating these brain chips that when implanted in the brain, basically allows you to connect and theoretically you can connect to other brain chips. So if you and I each had one, we could send messages and send messages via something as simple as Bluetooth, for example. Mm -hmm. So just the same as we send text messages to each other, we could send thoughts to each other. But what is even more amazing is we could potentially expand this to everything around us. So I could connect it to my stove and I could have a thought, I want dinner cooked. And then the stove will start to cook dinner <laughs> or uh, I don't know, all of these very, very, very unlimited possibilities that are out there that I think we are just beginning to touch on, like you said. And like we were both saying earlier, we need to expand our consciousness before we have this type of powerful abilities at our hands because honestly at this point in my opinion we're not ready as humans right we are not ready to have this type of power no we need to be a lot more a 
aware, exactly. a lot more expanded, a lot more connected to each other, connected to the earth, connected to the universe. We just need to have that very, very, very expanded sense of oneness because the ability to, uh, for, you know, competition, for one group to hurt another group with these types of powers will just be, it'll be too much. It'll be too much that we can handle. And I, I think we'll destroy ourselves to be very dramatic. I agree. Just watching the way people are reacting to the US elections is showing us how we're not ready. Mm -hmm. When we can't come together as a humanity, um, just uh, appreciating other points of view, like just in political you know, opponents, like these are politicians, guys. So sure, you don't agree with them, but can you still appreciate them? Yeah, it just, it's, yeah. We've got a long way to go, really, Naza, don't we? We just, um, yeah, we've got a long way to go. Anyway, yeah, that's why you are doing what you're doing, changing the world and oh, teaching people about their cognition and empathy and all that sort of stuff you know I was going to we've been yakking for ages and you probably have to go I was going to say how do you think consciousness dovetails with the brain because obviously in neuroscience they say that consciousness doesn't exist and like many of the scientists still believe that consciousness doesn't exist it's all a product we're all a product of the neurons firing in the brain is that what you were taught when you were studying that or are they coming to the party with consciousness or the soul being the sort of the brain being the uh you know the hard drive and the soul being the software i suppose mm, yes i love that question well like i was telling you i was very lucky and blessed that i ended up in a specific program when i thought right. i didn't want but in the end it was the program ever because i was blessed with very very open-minded uh, professors who right. basically said we don't know that's what I learned when I was in school. And I've kept that with me is that we don't really know and we're still figuring it out. But if just from my own, you know, personal opinion, my own hypothesis, I believe that we are, we are energetic beings and our brains are the hardware that allow us to perceive and understand what that energy means. But the energy is so expansive that we only have a certain capacity based on the limited hardware that we're able to perceive and process the world around us. Mm. So as we slowly use more and more of our brain consciously, I think we'll be able to understand the world in a very different way. And will things in the future, like downloading our consciousness to a hard drive be possible? Mm. I think it can. There's mm. so much that can possible and we're just at the very 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 beginning of all of it we're in the infancy of understanding any of this but that's what's so exciting about it too what do you think about the ai and, and all that stuff like you're talking about with elon musk talking about the chip do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing because there are a lot of people against the whole expansion of ai and some people really excited about it what are your thoughts on it i think it's a beautiful thing because from my perspective, the purpose of everything is expansion, mm. is what's next, is to experience something new and different. And that's what each generation does. And it's just happening at a very rapid pace now. And mm. that's why we were saying that we need 
humanity and consciousness to be expanded enough and this idea of connectedness and oneness with everything to be the primary thought and the primary belief that we have before we get there. So is it a good or bad thing? I think it's going to be up to us to choose as humans. We get to choose if it's going to be. It's like what you do with it. Fire can cook you a meal or it can burn you at the stake. It's like, yeah, it's just what do you do with it? Yeah, it's the intention behind it. It's the same as, you know, the internet, the invention of the internet. Exactly. beauty and it can be used for evil and it has been used for both yeah but luckily it's not such a power i mean it's a powerful tool but it's not so powerful that it can create massive destruction but these new technologies that we're talking about getting to like the ais and the brain chips it can it can have that kind of massive destruction so we need to catch up before we get there I went to see um, a, a woman I had on the show called Susie Hansen, who is um, a jewel. She wrote a book called The Jewel Soul Connection. So she's communing with the ETs all the time. And she was up on the ships talking to them a lot. And they have a lot of technology that they've given humanity. And she was talking about a lot of the technology she, she saw as a child, which is now coming out in our science. And one of them was a scanner that you put over the body. And it's like an X-ray machine, but you can see uh, in full colour like blood vessels or and you can change it and then see nerves or you can change it and see bones or you can change it and then see lymphocytes like it has a lot of applications that rather than what we look at now with scans you just like an x-ray just shows you bones or um, you know anyway it was an advanced form of a thing and and I was thinking like when I was doing energy healing like I learned to look inside people's body and read them with my psychic ability so I'm thinking, if these beings are so advanced, why are they using a machine instead of just using their consciousness to look inside the body? So I posed the question, why? And then she said, oh, they don't use these machines. They use their consciousness for that. They've made these machines for humanity. And I'm like, oh, so that they can have that you know, next step. Before- wow. Yeah. And I'm like, wow okay cool you know so they've got these advanced machines med beds and all sorts of things that can heal the body because we can heal the body with our consciousness so why do we need a med bed you know what a med bed is like you get in and it recalibrates your energy and it heals things and can cancers disappear and all this sort of stuff like there's all this technology out there but it's just like our next step until we learn to focus our consciousness in a way that we can do it all consciously Um, we're going to use technology. It's a bit like the internet. We're talking on the internet because we can't talk telepathically and have this communication and then, and then send that into the minds of, you know, the people watching. But years ago, there was a movie made called Indigo about the Indigo kids that are on a telepathic internet and they all communicate with each other all over the world. Have you seen that movie? It was made about 20 years ago. Yeah. So uh, it's everything that we do with, technology it's all possible through consciousness it's so exciting isn't it (laughs) it's so exciting have you frozen again oh there you are you're back you're looking gorgeous anyway (laughs) oh darling thank you it's been beautiful to have you on the show I could chat with you about this all day there's so many other things uh we could talk about but let me tell people you've got fabulous um shows on your youtube channel and it's youtube 
facebook.com slash Naza Nalani, N-A-Z-A-N-A-L-A-N-I, and Facebook page, Naza Alani Official, and obviously your website, which is uh, vibrantmind.ca. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're frozen again. Come back to me. Come back. Come back. There you are. She's back. <laughs> I'm back. I, I think I'm back. Okay. <laughs> Come on, internet. We're so close. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. It didn't, it didn't like we were talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want you to do it with your consciousness. Don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't annihilate me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So thank you so much for having me today. And if anyone wants to get in touch, I would love that. Please come over to my YouTube channel and uh, subscribe. And I share lots of stuff about the brain and the mind and consciousness and how we can use brain training as well as mindset and manifestation to move towards anything that we want, anything that our heart desires. And it's just been such a joy to speak with you today. I am obsessed with ATP Media and your show. So I can't <laughs> wait to check out our episode and so many of your future episodes as well. Thank you for having me. Isn't she just gorgeous? I just, just love that amazing woman. <laughs> Dr. Nalani, do I say her last name right? I was uh, fascinated to hear about her lineage and um, the experience of her family. Wow. She is a bright spark in, um, in the consciousness movement. Just beautiful. And her, um, her YouTube channels are fabulous. We were just talking about next week, I've got Jaylene Tracy coming back on the show, who was also in the Higher Self Expo. And, and recently she had me on her new show called Friends in the Field, which I think is a great name. And she was saying to me after that, that she has had a lot of clients that have been tuning into some future lives and talking about, you know, these probable futures in a positive way. And I said, oh, let's talk about that. And Naza and I were just saying that, you know, when you have information, you can kind of um, when it's once it's in your when it's it's in your consciousness either in your consciousness or subconsciousness it, you can you can look for it just like we were talking about uh, when you want something and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere so if you're you're informed about what's possible then you start to see it as emerging or a reality in your experience and so I thought it would be great to talk about probable future lives that are in a positive bent you know what is possible what we can live so that we start to see it and I was saying to Naza that I um I said for her to check out Penny Kelly because Penny Kelly and I had discussed her books the robes and and in the book the robes these little men in brown robes she calls the robes showed her some future probable futures some of them very destructive and saying that's why you need to get out there and teach people about how to how to utilize their consciousness uh, but some of them were ever very positive. And one of the positive future realities was this, this where the society came together in what's called family groups and they were self-sustainable and they all looked after each other. And some of them were thousands, like a small town or cities, and some of them were hundreds. And um, they had 
uh, all the resources that they need that they all shared. There was no money and they had what was called a kitchen garden. And in this kitchen garden, there was this technology that was like a dome over the kitchen garden. I think it was like a, an energy field or a force field that created its own atmosphere. And so you could grow anything. You wouldn't have to use pesticides or herbicides or anything because uh, the technology would keep the birds from eating the plants or, and it would be a, a, a bit like a, a glass house without it being a glass house. It was like a technology that we don't have yet. And, um, and everyone ate this healthy, beautiful food from the kitchen garden instead of buying them in supermarkets. And anyway, I was away on the weekend in the forest and there's a man creating a community in the forest and he was sharing his vision. And as he was sharing his vision, I was thinking, wow, this is the same. This is the, his vision is the same as what was written about in the robe. So it's interesting to learn about these things because when we do, we start to see it appearing in our lives. And as I've, I've thought about how people are coming together in community groups or family groups in the robes, I'm starting to see that happening everywhere. People starting... Uh, communal living I mean it's been happening since the 60s they're called communes but for the most part communes haven't worked because everyone's all up in their ego and they've all got different points of view and they all fight whether they're spiritual communes I think some of the spiritual communes have been the worst I've heard horror stories of people coming together and with spiritual ideals and uh, it all goes pear shape mm, and there's a documentary on I think it's one of the streaming platforms about the Osho the sannyasin spiritual commune that was created in the states and how that went all pear shaped but maybe we can do it we can still do it we just have to be more love and light be more allowing and and be into different points of view just like nasa and i were talking about in order to live together in these family groups or instead of like i'm here in the big city i do know my neighbors i have to admit i know my neighbors in the front and back i don't know the people on the side uh, but yeah, well, I'm in this big city surrounded by people, but for the most part, I don't know who lives around me. It's crazy, isn't it? Isn't it crazy to think that I'm living side by side with all these people and I don't know them? But in these family groups, we're all working together. Yeah, and we all know each other. Yeah, anyway. Oh, hair's looking crazy. Um, I loved that. I could have talked to her all day. Fascinating, fascinating. Anyway, so next week is Jaylene coming on the show to talk about probable future realities and what she has, um, what she's heard some of her clients say about tapping into the future. And uh, yeah, we're going to create some ideals to live into for, for, for a probable future time to align with, to align with a positive future instead of aligning with the chaos that's going on on the planet right now especially in our political systems and our health systems with the you know what that we've been experiencing this year in 2020 when it comes to health 111 i keep seeing numbers aligned today it's 1111 as we discussed and it's 111 i should take a screenshot on my phone anyway love you all and remember to buy the book awakened by death and join our inner sanctum if you're interested uh this weekend is sage coming up and I threw in one of my um, uh, members who has been channeling. She kind of tapped into her ability, to her higher consciousness. She's probably always been connected, but she did it more intentionally this year and started, you know, bringing through messages. And I threw her in the hot seat in our inner sanctum and she was just magnificent. Angela Anderson, 
just uploaded it onto YouTube. Check it out. It's fabulous. She's fabulous. She shares her journey, her story and how it happened. And uh, I got her to tune into her mob, her tribe, her spiritual team. And we all quizzed her. We all asked her questions, uh, both global questions and personal questions. And she was fabulous. It was the first time that she'd ever done that, but she's so ready to be doing more of that. So that's up uh, on YouTube, hmm. up on YouTube and on uh, the audio platforms now. Big love to you. Bye for now. <laughs>